following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This is not distracted. Uh, this is uh, a new sermon uh, this week. So, um, in thinking about Advent... Uh, I've put together a, a sermon called Pause. So rather than distraction, this is, this is pause as we head into the Advent season. Let me start with a question, though, by asking you, have you ever thought that you were doing the right thing, but then found out it was the wrong thing? Uh, maybe your motives were pure, but maybe your motives ended up being beside the point. They weren't the point. I don't know if you've had an experience like this. I've, I've done that many times. Uh, but for myself, one that distinctly sticks out in my mind has to do with the time when we first arrived in Mozambique. Uh, Mozambique was the first uh, place that we had served. Uh, we had gone to Portugal. We had studied Portuguese. We landed in Mozambique and uh, began working there. Uh, Heidi and I were involved in administration. I was doing some teaching at a Bible school. Um, but we ended up being... Uh, in a position of being a liaison as well between uh, the mission headquarters, which was located in the capital city, and uh, the church headquarters, which was also located in the capital city. Our director was uh, two days' drive north up in the the far part of um, Mozambique being involved in Bible translation. And so this was back when email had just come out, and once a day he would link up with his satellite phone and download email and respond and send it back to me. And then I was often... Uh, the voice of the mission, so to speak, uh, to the church headquarters, our partner, partner church headquarters. And I remember uh, in this role, I was often in a lot of uh, denominational meetings, but there's one particular that sticks out in my mind. I was there. There were a dozen uh, other church leaders there, most of them at the denominational level. I don't remember the topic, but I do remember how I felt uh, at that time. There were a number of issues going on in the church. There were some sin issues that uh, hadn't been addressed uh, amongst some of the pastors within the church, which I felt like were being ignored. Uh, there were some other pastors who were my friends that I felt like they were being treated unfairly. And so I had this uh, sense of, of uh, righteous indignation welling up within me. And I, was, I wanted to tell... Uh, some of these leaders, what I thought and how I felt about certain situations. And so as this welled up within me, I told the head of the church that some of the decisions that they were making were sinful and unbiblical. And for a moment, I felt very justified. I felt like, yes, I have spoken the truth boldly. Uh, But then I looked around at everyone's faces and realized nobody was looking at me. Even my close friend, one of the pastors who used to invite me very regularly to speak at his church, was now looking at the ground. And I thought, hmm, what have I done? Uh, It took me uh, months to recover from that uh, cultural mistake that I had made. I realized quite quickly that uh, even though you know my degree included cultural anthropology and biculturalism and ethnographic studies and so forth, it had all been mostly theory and was still theory. I was needing to figure out how to 
work it out and how to make it uh, practice. I also figured out, though, that as a young 25-year-old, fresh out of language school, fresh out of Bible school, I should not be speaking to the head of the church that way. Not in a denomination where issues of honor and shame are highly at stake. And so it took me months to recover from that. I eventually did. Um, but I had to figure out what does it look like to work through these kinds of issues. Today I want us to consider the story of a young man. He was sure that he was doing the right thing. He had very strong convictions about what he was doing. He had a strong faith and he had a whole lot of righteous indignation. He believed that he was defending the faith. He believed that he was defending uh, and getting rid of some people who were involved in new false teaching that was coming around. That young man was the Apostle Paul. We have three accounts of the conversion of Apostle Paul. The first one is in chapter 9, which falls within the chronological order uh, that Luke gives in his book of Acts. Uh, The second one is in chapter uh, 22, where Paul defends himself before the crowd outside of uh, the temple. And the third one comes in chapter 26, when Paul gives a testimony before King Agrippa. Today, I'd like for us to look at the account in chapter 22. Uh, But by way of background in in leading us up to that passage, I want us to remember what's going on. So Paul has just finished up his third missionary journey, uh, and he arrives in Jerusalem. But on the way to going to Jerusalem, people had told him, they said, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. You're going to be imprisoned, um, and uh, there will be other things, unpleasant things waiting there for you. But the Spirit The text tells us that the Spirit constrained him to go. And so he continues on toward Jerusalem. He gets there. He meets up with James. He meets up with the other elders of the church. And he begins to talk about him and his colleagues. They begin to share all of the things that have happened. And they give praise to God for everything that has happened on Paul and his journeys and how the gospel is spreading. But then they say to Paul, they say, you know, thanks for the report. Um... And by the way, there are thousands of Jews who have now also come to Christ. And we're so happy about this. But uh, there's a problem. There's been a word going around that um, people have been saying that in the places that you have been going, you have been telling the Jews who live amongst the Gentiles that they should forsake Moses. They should forsake the law. They don't need to follow circumcising their children. And this has concerned them deeply. So then they ask, what should we do? But then immediately after that, they say, here's what we think you should do. So there's kind of this question, but then what do you think we should do? Do this. And so what do they suggest to him? They suggest to him, they say, Paul, we've got four guys here. They're under oath. Why don't you take these four guys, take yourselves, go through a purification ritual, pay for them, give the gifts on their behalf. That way, everybody will know that you have not uh, forsaken um, the law or at least forsaken it completely. And so Paul takes their advice. He takes, he pays for them, uh, so that everyone will see that everyone that Paul is still in observance. So then after seven days, Paul's in the temple. And some of the Jews from Asia, where Paul had recently been, see him. And so what do they do? It says they grabbed him, and they say, Men of Israel, help! So they've got a hold of him. They're not going to let him go. Help us. This is the man. This is the one who has been telling everyone 
everywhere. He's been preaching against the law. He's been preaching against our people. He's been preaching against this place. And so it says the whole city was stirred up and people came running from all directions. They dragged Paul out of the temple, probably into the outer court, the the court where the Gentiles were. They drag him out of the temple. They close the doors to the temple and then they begin to beat him. Word got around quite quickly to the Roman tribune who was there. Uh, We understand that the tribune probably had his station quite near to the temple. The temple was sort of the center of the city, kind of like the the square. So word gets to the tribune that something's going on. The tribune was the one who was in charge of the Roman troops. He would have been in charge of a whole legion of troops there in Jerusalem. Legion of troops would have been about a thousand troops that he was in charge of, about uh, 760 infantry, 240 cavalry. So the tribune grabs some of his own personal guards grab some centurions, and they go down to see what is the chaos that's going on. And so as they get down there, the mob who is beating Paul sees them, and they stop beating him. So the first thing they do is they arrest Paul. They put him in two chains, and then he asked the crowd, the tribune asked the crowd, who is this person, and what has he done? Well, People begin screaming all kinds of things. This, this, this. He can't figure it out. And so the tribune decides to take him back to the barracks to figure out what is the story. What is going on here? However, the soldiers have to literally pick up Paul and carry him out. It says the crowd was so violent and so enraged, they literally pick Paul up and carry him toward the barracks. And I guess as they're carrying him toward the barracks, I'm trying to imagine what this looks like in my head. They're carrying him toward the barracks. They get near the barracks and Paul leans over and says to the tribune, can I say something to you? He asks permission to speak. And so the tribune says to him, well, do you speak Greek? And Paul says, I do. And so then the tribune says, are you the Egyptian who uh, brought about a uh, a riot against, uh, or a revolt against um, uh, recently? And so uh, Paul says, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. And then he says, may I speak to the people? Now, I don't know what kind of impact this response had on the tribune, but obviously it was enough. He figured he speaks Greek. He's a Jew. I'll let him speak. So he gives Paul the opportunity to speak. Now, I don't know. If I was in Paul's situation, if I have a whole mob of people, the whole city's enraged against me. They're angry. They're not making sense. They're beating me. If I was Paul being carried off by soldiers, I think at that point I might be a little bit happy to get out of the chaos. But instead, Paul says... Let me speak to the people. So the tribune says, okay, go ahead. You can speak to the people. This brings us to our passage for today, Acts chapter 22, verses 1 to 24. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the passage there. So this is Paul. He now addresses the crowd that has just been uh, beating him. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus in Sicilia. Sicilia, sorry. Um, But brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being jealous for God, as all of you who are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. 
From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for me to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Upon this word, they listened to him. Or up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So here in Paul's account uh, of his conversion, we see in the first five verses that Paul was a devout Jew. He makes his argument about his devotion to Judaism. Paul was arrested by the tribune for rioting, but he doesn't take opportunity to defend himself and to say, I didn't start this riot. It wasn't me. Instead, he takes opportunity to make a defense for the gospel. A speech that he ultimately doesn't get to finish. So he addresses them in the local language. We, we're not sure if it was Hebrew or Aramaic. It's not clear. But whatever it was, it has the desired effect. The crowd becomes very quiet. And he begins addressing them. He says, brothers and fathers. This is the same phrase that Stephen used in Acts chapter 7, just before he was stoned. Paul is identifying himself with them. I am one of you. I am a Jew. Paul goes on and explains how strict of a Jew he was. He was born in Tarsus, but he grew up in Jerusalem. And he sat at the very feet of the, um, the most revered teacher of that era, Gamaliel. He explains how zealous he was and how he had persecuted the Christians. He's essentially saying, I am one of you. In fact, I've surpassed many of you 
in my zealousness because I persecuted the Christians to death. He says, you can even go check. Go check with the uh, leaders. Go check with the high priest. They know what I did. They will know how zealous I was. I obtained letters to capture the Christians outside of Jerusalem. I began making journeys to go get Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem so that they would be punished. He continues on in verses 6 to 11, talks about his encounter with Christ. So as he was beginning to go toward uh, Damascus, he emphasizes certain points in his story that would appeal to his Jewish audience. He tells him he was traveling to Damascus, a great light from heaven shines down. He falls to the ground and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He answers, who are you, Lord? The response is, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the only account where this of Nazareth is attached to Jesus. They all knew where Nazareth was. They all knew Jesus came from Nazareth. It was very clear. We're told the people who were with him did not understand his voice. But now Paul responds. He says, what shall I do, Lord? Up to this point in the story, Paul has been identifying very closely with his Jewish audience. But now he begins to differentiate himself from them. He acknowledges that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is Lord. So Paul was going to Damascus. He was uh, still blind, and so he's led by the hand into the city of Damascus. Verses 12 to 16 is Paul's conversion and his calling. Here Paul introduces Ananias as a devout man according to the law well spoken of by the Jews. Again, the emphasis on connecting with the audience. Chapter 9, Ananias, interestingly, was introduced as a Christian disciple. But here he's not introduced as that. He's introduced as a devout man, uh, well spoken of by the Jews. So here his devotion to Judaism is stressed. And we're given more uh, information on Ananias' interaction with Paul. He adds to what we already know from chapter 9. But one thing that's left out is the three days that Paul spent in Damascus between his arrival and when he actually met up with Ananias. So then um, he spent that time. It says that he fasted uh, before he met up with Ananias, who then helps his uh, sight to return. And then Ananias speaks some words to Paul about his calling this calling that Paul will have. Ananias' words to Paul are very Jewish. He begins by using the title, God of our fathers. This is very strong Old Testament language. He continues on and he says uh, that he has been appointed to see the righteous one. This was a Jewish messianic title. It was also used in Acts within uh, speeches again by Stephen, but then also by Peter. So Paul is told that he will be a witness for Jesus to everyone of what he has seen and what he has heard. And so even though Paul tells the crowd that he's speaking to that his message is going to be for everyone, they haven't quite yet picked up on the significance of what Paul is saying to them. Ananias finishes with Paul and says, What are you waiting for? Or, Why do you wait? This was a common Greek idiom basically saying, it's time to act. And so he essentially says to him, take action, be baptized, wash away your sins, and call on Christ's name. 
Verses 17 to 21, we have Paul's commission. Paul now talks about when he was at the temple in Jerusalem. So Paul had been in Damascus. He returns, or he travels back to Jerusalem. He's there in the temple, uh, and he's praying. And we have this commission. It's very similar, interestingly, to uh, the commission and calling of Isaiah. Just as with Isaiah, Paul has a vision from the Lord. And like Isaiah, he experiences a call and a commission. Like Isaiah, he's told that people will resist your message. However, unlike Isaiah, who was specifically told to stay in Jerusalem, Paul is told, you need to get out of Jerusalem. Paul's first response to getting out of Jerusalem was to protest. He emphasizes that he has a convincing testimony. I have a convincing testimony to bear. Everybody knows my background. They'll have to know that something dramatic happened to me. I was even there participating in Stephen's death. People will know that what I am saying is true. But regardless of Paul's assurance of his compelling testimony, God tells him a second time, you need to leave Jerusalem. I have another task for you, and that task is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So now in verses 22 to 24, we have the crowd's reaction. As soon as Paul quoted these words from his vision, I will send you to the Gentiles, everything changed. The mob who was listening as he spoke in the language that they all understood, everything changed. The mob stopped listening and things returned to chaos. The words that Christ had spoken in the vision to Paul were actually fulfilled. He tells them his testimony. They don't accept it. They raise their voices. They say, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. They were shouting. It says they were throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust. We don't know exactly what the flinging in the dust means. Uh, it was probably some sort of protest of his blasphemy. It could mean that they tore their cloaks in response. It could mean that they threw them off, getting ready to stone Paul. It could mean that they were shaking out the dust in, in response as if they could somehow get rid of the defilement of his blasphemy. But either way it goes. Uh, it could be, too, that they were picking dust and throwing it. There was nothing more substantial they could get their hands on. And so they begin throwing this at Paul. But either way it goes, it's very clear they were outraged. So the Roman tribunal again is forced to save Paul from this mob. He obviously doesn't understand why they're upset, but he does order, take Paul in, prepare him for flogging. We need to find out what's going on. What is this story? Extract from him the reason that the crowd is so angry. And we had the advantage of the, the fuller picture of, of looking back to know why the crowd was angry. Paul's statement that he was being sent by God to proclaim a message that the Messiah would be also for the Gentiles was completely unheard of. The suggestion that the Messiah would be for everyone was enraging. The Jews were the chosen people of God. This was a significant point of national identity for them. Suggesting that the Messiah would be for the whole world would be lessening the importance of the Jewish people. Paul would be disloyal to his own people by proclaiming such a message. If Christ the Messiah was the Messiah of the whole world, the Jews would no longer hold this place of prominence, of exclusive focus, and being the favored people of God. 
Of course they got angry. This was getting right down into their very identity. This was blasphemy and it had to be stopped. So I'd like us to consider two truths from our passage today and how they might apply to our lives as we enter this Christmas season. The first one is the message of Christ, the Messiah, is for everyone. Regardless of how the crowd at Jerusalem felt about the idea of the promised Messiah being for the whole world, regardless of how they felt about it, it was the truth. Jesus Christ came into this world as a baby. He lived like any other person except he did not sin. He announced that the kingdom was coming, but it was not the kingdom they were expecting. It was a spiritual kingdom. It was not a national kingdom. It was not a political kingdom. He was rejected by mankind. He unjustly died on a wooden cross for our sins. And he opened up the way for us to have a restored relationship with God. A restored relationship with God for anyone who chooses to believe. And this message is for everyone. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for people who speak certain languages. It's not just for people from a certain people group. It is intended for all people everywhere. So as we enter into this Christmas season, I want to challenge us to pause, to pause, to thank God that he's made salvation available to everyone, to pause and to thank God that he sent his son to this earth. The second truth I think we can see from this passage is that God directs and God redirects as he sees fit. Paul thought he was doing the right thing. Paul had studied hard. He was more zealous than his colleagues. He was seeking to ensure doctrinal purity in his religion. He volunteered for the task of ridding Judaism of this new error, of this new threat. And then God pulled the rug right out from under his feet. He was so sure he was heading in the right direction. Paul needed to be redirected. He was literally stopped right in his path. He was blinded. He went from, as chapter 9 says, breathing threats of murder against the disciples to now being led by the hand into the city of Damascus. He's now declaring Jesus of Nazareth as Lord. He went from being an independent, strong-minded, determined man to suddenly needing to be led around by the hand. He needed to pause. He spent three days fasting before he met Ananias. The Bible doesn't tell us what he was thinking about during that time, but I suspect that he did a lot of re-examining about his understanding about God, his understanding about the Messiah, about the paths that he had taken up until that point, and about his new calling. So like Paul... I think we also need to have times where we stop, we reflect, we refocus. Paul had an involuntary pause. God broke into what he was doing. He completely derailed Paul's plans. But I would like to suggest to us this Advent season or this Christmas season that we take a voluntary pause. Let's pause. 
let's reflect, let's re-examine ourselves and let's ask ourselves some, some questions. It doesn't come naturally to everyone. Uh, sometimes it's very easy to be busy in your work. It can be busy, easy to be busy in your ministry. Uh, you're focusing in on the thing that you believe God has called you to do. And so sometimes the holidays can seem like a unwelcome break from the really important work that we have to do, that we've been called to do. And we tell ourselves that holidays are mostly filled with a lot of traditions anyway, so let's get through them. However, I think if we stop and reflect, look at the Old Testament, look at the festivals, look at the uh, feasts that God instituted in, in the Old Testament, we see that these were intentional times that God set aside for the people to stop, to pause, to come together as a community, to think, to commemorate different things. They were instituted pauses with the idea of stopping, remembering, reflecting, and celebrating. They had many of them every year. I was looking at how many it changed over the time. There was at least seven festivals every year. There were times that were set aside for this. Uh, you think about it. We have basically two. We've got Christmas. We've got Easter. We need to take advantage of them. So over this next month, let me, let me challenge you to pause. To pause. So here are a few things to think about. The first one is consider your focus. Stop and consider your focus. Is it in the right place? Are you rushing ahead headlong into your work, headlong into your ministry so fast that you don't have space to make sure that you're even still on the right track? Paul was rushing ahead with his agenda. He was chasing down Christians. He was focused on righting that wrong thing. God had to get his attention. Will God need to get your attention? Are you so focused on your work that you're neglecting your spouse? Are you so focused on your ministry that your children only get whatever time is left over that you have? Are you so distracted by your devices that you get to the end of the day and you're not even sure what you did today because of distraction? Challenge us to think and review our calling as well. Paul was quite sure that he was called to root out unsound doctrine of the way. This conviction ran very deep. God had to give him his attention and give him a new calling. But sometimes... God redirects us and gives us a new calling, too. But we have to be listening. We have to be discerning. I think there's a lot of bad information out there these days about discerning God's will. I think some of it comes from our cultures that are highly focused on the individual. I think some of it comes from a poor theology of the Christian life. Um, some would suggest, for example, that uh, if we desire to figure out God's will, we need to figure out what our passions are. Just figure out what your passion is. The line of reasoning goes like this, basically. God has given us our passions, and he wants us to see those passions fulfilled in our lives. And so you need to go find out what your passion is. You need to serve in those passions. And while I feel that there may be some validity to that, it runs the danger of suggesting that it would not be God's will for us to do something that we're not passionate about. And I think that's false. There's another line of thinking that suggests that once we come to Christ, life's difficulties all go away. It may not be explicitly stated, but 
it kind of runs in our mind that, you know, if we're good, if we save, serve faithfully, it'll mostly be smooth sailing. But this is not the truth. Sometimes we're called to pass through difficult times as well. And we don't always know why we pass through them. But we can trust that God knows why we're passing through these difficulties. Acts chapter 9, God reveals to Ananias Paul's glorious calling. I mean, listen to this calling. He says, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. Wow. What a calling. I mean, that's, that's heavy. To know that one day Paul will have a chance to proclaim the gospel to the kings. Don't we all wish we had such a privileged calling? However, his calling doesn't stop there. There's, there's more to Paul's calling. He tells Ananias, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What? Paul's calling included suffering? How, how could that be? I mean, what if suffering was not in Paul's area of passion? What if suffering was not included in Paul's theology of the Christian life? Does he still have to participate? I mean, why would God include that? I can't tell you 100% sure that I know for sure. I've got some ideas. Um, I think some pretty good ideas. Uh, but that would be a, a whole different sermon. So I'm not going to go there. But we know that we can trust God. So let me challenge you today. Take time to pause and review your calling. Ask God if you're still on course or if he wants to redirect you. And as you review, remember that his calling may not include things that you're passionate about. It may may include some things that are challenging. It may include some things that are difficult. Your calling may be more about serving in the body with your gifts than your own personal sense of fulfillment. The other thing I think we should reflect on is for us to hold our plans open-handed. When Paul was at the temple in Jerusalem praying, God told Paul to leave Jerusalem. You would have thought that Paul's first response to direct revelation was, thank you, God, for the direct revelation. I mean, how many times, how many times have we prayed and asked God for real clear direction and we waited and we looked for different ways that God leads us. But here Paul is given some direct revelation. Leave Jerusalem. What does Paul do? He, he argues. I mean, isn't this typical of us, us people? Uh, we ask for something, and then when God gives it to us, we say, are you sure about that, God? I've got a better idea. What about my idea? Uh, Paul tells, uh, God tells Paul, no, you need to leave Jerusalem. And this was not the only time that Paul or that God redirected Paul numerous times during Paul's journey we're told that the Spirit prevented him from going there or the Spirit directed him over there. Paul made his plans, but he had to be open to the Spirit's redirection. So when we hold our plans open-handedly, we need to do that so that God can break in, can redirect us. He may do that in ways that we don't expect. And when this happens, it can be confusing. Uh... I remember our first term I I'm related to earlier in, in Mozambique. Um, after we left, we were on our first furlough. 
And we received news while we were on furlough that the partner church that we were working with was asking all of the missionaries to leave. So the church partner we had, they worked with two mission organizations, and there were some disagreements over expectations. And so they said, okay, we'd like all of the missionaries to leave. Um, And I remember that time of uh, confusion. We passed through this. It raised a lot of questions in our head. We were asked to go and serve in Malawi. And so, you know, we'd been in Portugal. We'd studied Portuguese. We'd served a term in Mozambique. And so the questions to God like, okay, God, why did you have me learn Portuguese? Like, like, what was going on with that? Uh, why did you take us down this path? I mean, what about all those relationships that we built with people there? Um, what are you doing? Uh, and I don't think we'll have all the answers to these questions on this side of eternity. We just need to trust God. So I believe it's good for us to dream great dreams. I believe that we have a responsibility to make plans, but I also think we need to place them on the altar. We need to trust God's sovereignty with them. So as you pause this Christmas season and review your callings and plans, hold them open-handedly. What does God require you now at this season in life? Are you holding tightly two-fisted onto your plans? Let me challenge you. Give them back to God. Put them back on the altar. Make yourself fully available to his direction. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for sending your son to die for us. We thank you that someone shared the gospel with us We thank you that your message has been made available to everyone, everywhere. And so many of us are beneficiaries of that. We thank you. We pray as we head into this Advent season, we will stop, we will pause. We will thank you again for sending your Son. We thank you that you guide, that you direct, that you work in our lives, that you want to use us. We pray that you'll help us to make ourselves available, to be listening to you, to be discerning, to hear you through all of the, the white noise out there. And we ask that you would, if we're heading in the wrong direction, break in and redirect us. Help our hearts to be open, to be malleable, to be, to be willing to, to change to make our plans, but then to, to be ready for them to be changed, to be altered, uh, for your spirit to come and tell us that, that we're heading in the wrong direction. Pray that we'll use this season to, to reflect on these deeper things, to take time. Pray all this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.